we, Father, we recognize that none of us were righteous. Not one, Lord. We have all sinned and fallen short of your glory. We were running our hell-bound races. We were indifferent to what that meant of our rebellion against you. And yet you looked upon our helpless state and you sent your son to die for us. Father, we would glory in that truth. Help us to see clearly, Lord, these truths. Help us to see the helpless state that we were in so that we could glory in the work that your son has done for us in his redemption. Father, give us eyes to see. Give us minds to understand. Give us hearts that would cherish the truth, these good news truths of the gospel. Father, we pray for Pastor Bob. We pray that he would declare your word faithfully, Lord, this morning in a way that would work powerfully in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Don't you just love singing and considering the words that you're singing? Just, uh, to me, it's a very uh, great time to draw near to the Lord. It's very incredible time. It's like uh, the song is teaching you sound doctrine, and it's teaching you to draw near unto God at the same time. So this morning, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3, and we'll be considering verses 9 through 20 as Paul brings his final closing arguments. It's as if he's in a courtroom and he's the, the uh, prosecuting attorney, and mankind is sitting on the stand, and and uh, he's bringing his final closing arguments in what has been a rather lengthy and detailed presentation of the sinfulness and wretchedness of all men, both Jew and Gentile alike, before a just and a holy God. In fact, God is the judge sitting at the hearing. And in these, this final exhortation, this final argumentation, he turns to the ultimate source of scriptures, the Word of God, to seal the fate and condemnation of all men before their creator and sovereign and judge. And indeed, it's a sobering moment and a sobering judgment and a sobering verdict that's being passed here. There is none righteous, not even one. The verdict, all men stand guilty as charged before a holy God. Not one get-out-of-jail-free card. No one has ever lived a perfect life save Christ alone. Now, just to set the scene of the magnificent courtroom drama, let's read together verses 9 through 20 of Romans chapter 3. He says, what then? And this is kind of the question after Pastor Craig's sermon last week. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greek are, are all under sin. For it is written, the Scripture says, God says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps or vipers or snakes is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, and 
And Paul's pretty much established that everybody is really under the law, whether it's written in your heart or whether it's written down on paper in the Scripture. It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, by man's own self-effort, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And that's where it stops. What the law produces is that you know you're a sinner, and that's it. Now, here Paul unloads both barrels. And just in case you missed the point of the first three and a half chapters, it's impossible to miss the point here. Impossible. <laughs> James Stifler, in his commentary on Romans, summed up these first three chapters like this. He said, the first main division of the epistle forms a powerful negative argument for the second and was evidently so intended. Since man is a sinner with no help in himself and none in the law, what is left for him but to look to the mercy of God? Nothing's left. That's his last option, and there is no option beyond that. He says, every son of Adam is not only lost, but condemned. His penalty is continuance in sin, not only while he sins, but because he has sinned. We saw that in Romans chapter 1. The, the judgment on sin is greater sin and greater sin beyond that. And uh, he says, this is the wrath of God, the proposition that begins in the first main division in chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They knew God at one time, and then they descended into the worship of themselves. He says, and is proved in it. He says, all the world is guilty before God in a court of justice. It is only after every defense has failed and the law itself has been shown to be broken it is only at this point that the appeal is made to the judge for his clemency or his mercy. The epistle has brought us to such a point. And that's where we're at as we go through these verses. We are to the point that there is no other option left save the Savior. And that's Paul's point. Paul's closing argument is so powerful, so condemning that it leaves man no other option but to throw himself on the mercy and grace of God. He is out of any other options and out of hope. And sinners as we are, all men and women stand accountable before the judgment seat of God. It's a horrible realization if you ever come to that, and that's what will drive you to the Savior, drive you to the judge for mercy. Because Christ is both the judge, John chapter 5, and the Savior is the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. Now, as we look at this passage, I want us to see basically three things. First of all, I want us to see the verdict, the overall verdict in verse 9. Then the final closing arguments in verses 10 through 18 is Paul, I, I think, brilliantly. It's, it reminds me of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as he's proving the resurrection, but it, it may even be beyond that, but he brilliantly in these closing arguments uh, shows that man is totally condemned in verses 10 through 18. And uh, then he wants us to see the sentencing in verses 19 and 20. So first of all, let's look at the verdict. Look at verse 9 again. He says, what then? 
obviously a continuation from the first three chapters, uh, the first part of Romans in particular. He says, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That's the charge. We're all under sin. Now, Paul's charge and conclusion of these first three chapters begins with two questions. What then, and are we better than they? The what then carries with it the idea of what is the point of any further testimony? I've already shown that the immoral and the moral pagan, as well as the moral and immoral Jew, are all condemned, so what's the need to say any more? All men are condemned. They all stand condemned before the judgment of God. Then he anticipates his reader's reaction like, uh, hey, we're Christians, uh, are we better than them? And he just asks, are we better than these? And, and and it's kind of unclear who the we is, but I think it's Paul and the, the Roman believers. I believe it's the Jews and Gentiles who've been converted in the Roman church. You know, do we stand condemned with the rest of the world now that we're Christians? Are we Christians better than these non-Christians? That's a great point for us to understand. Paul's answer, not at all. No, we aren't. We're not better than them because all men prior to Christ are spiritually dead and all are under sin prior to Christ. No one man is spiritually alive and better than any other. In fact, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, I heard one preacher say, you know, the, the point of being a Christian is we don't realize we're better than everybody. We realize we're worse in need of the Savior. We needed to be redeemed. We needed to be forgiven. We needed to know a Savior from this world and from our sin. And, and uh, no man is spiritually alive and better than any other. It doesn't make us better, but what salvation does is make God awesome. He's incredible. Why would he forgive somebody like you and me? I mean, look at your life. I don't care if you're goody two-shoes or the worst evil cartel boss in the world. You can be forgiven. You're all sinners. We're all sinners. Martin Lloyd-Jones made the brilliant statement. He said, the Christian is not a good man. He is a vile wretch who has been saved by the grace of God. I love Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself, not even the faith of yourself, because God drew you to himself and, and gave you the faith to believe. But he says, not of yourself, not a result of works. It is the gift of God so that no one will boast. None of us will stand before God, the judge, and say, oh, God, you are so lucky to have me. I was such a wonderful person. Let me tell you the three good things I did for somebody. And that kind of cancels out the rest of my wretched life, right? Um, nice doesn't cut it, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But um, we're all forgiven, merely forgiven, vile sinners, saved as a gift of God's free and awesome grace. 
And in that sense, all the glory goes to Christ, none of it goes to us. Lest we think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And Paul says we have already charged. The Greek word here was often used as a legal term to designate a person previously indicted for a given offense. And then he uses the Greek word hupo, we are all under sin. Uh, the word under often spoke of a person totally under the power or authority or control of something or someone. In this case, the power of sin. All of mankind is under the power of sin. The Spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. Uh, in fact, in Romans chapter 6, Paul tells us that sin was our master, verse 14, and that, that we are indeed slaves to sin, verse 17. Why? Well, one commentator said every human being, both Jews and Greeks, are all under completely subservient and in the bondage to the domination of sin. That's what happens in our lives. Sin will always get the upper hand. That's why it was so terrible that Adam and Eve settled for the knowledge of good and evil because evil will always win out in the end if you have no power to fight it. We have the Holy Spirit. We can choose not to participate in sin as opposed to the world that cannot not choose not to participate. I think I said that right. So we see the verdict, the conclusion. All men, all people, both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. All are sinners. All stand condemned before the judgment seat of God. No exceptions. Then to prove his point, Paul brings this closing argument before the sentence is passed in verses 10 through 18. And, and it's basically all scripture. He says, as it is written. And up to this point, he's used very little direct quotations from the Old Testament, but here he backs up the dump truck and unloads as if to say, don't take my word for this, don't take my word for what I've said, but listen now to what God has to say. And he's going to unload on us as to what the Scripture says about the condition of men because Paul knows that any argument is only and ultimately substantiated by God's truth, and so he saves his most potent argument until now. This is called bringing it home. This is called bringing down the thunder, so to speak. Paul is bringing down the lightning bolt of God's word, and he is just destroying every argument that man could ever bring before a holy God to justify himself. So let's read again this closing argument as the apostle brings the word of God to bear on the spiritual condition of mankind. Look at verses 10 through 18 again. He says, as it is written, this is what God says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they keep deceiving or lying the poison of asps is under their lips. With their mouth, they're full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
pretty much describes our world as a whole, doesn't it? I mean, it's painting with a pretty broad brush, but that's pretty much where our world's at. Name a place, a country, where there's not upheaval and, and all kinds of crazy things going on, where everybody's not hating on each other. Now, in these verses, Paul quotes or alludes to many Old Testament passages, mainly from Psalms 14, which we read earlier, Isaiah 59, and and various prophets, and he uses the scripture to spell out the true and na- the true nature of man in no uncertain terms. It's amazing what he has to say, and he and he brings a 14 count indictment against fallen mankind. And just to make sure you get the message, he uses the phrases "none" or "not even one" six times. You get the point. There's none. There's not even one. Oh, I'm the exception. No, you're not. You're not the exception. I'm not the exception. Pastor Craig's not the None of us are the exception. There's no one, not one. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, none who seeks for God. There is none who does good, and everyone, and not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is an all-inclusive condemnation. Nobody escapes. In other words, mankind as a whole is spiritually bankrupt. These verses sort of remind me of some of my favorite verses in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Well, dead men are condemned already, right? He says, in which you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan, satanically energized. Uh, and he says, in which we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desire of the flesh and the mind, and were by our very nature children of wrath. And then he adds that disclaimer, even as the rest. Not only are we all children of wrath, but everybody's children of wrath, right? That's what he's saying. This passage defines for us what it means to be a child who by his very nature is a child of wrath both deserving and destined for hell. And Paul roughly divides the hell-bound sinner and, and into three well-defined categories here. Uh, he analyzes his character in verses 10 through 12, and he brings six indictments. He analyzes his speech or conversation, verses 13 and 14, and brings four condemnations or four indictments. And then he analyzes man's conduct in verses 15 through 18, and he brings four more indictments. So let's briefly look at these three areas as Paul indicates all of mankind is under sin. So first of all is character. You know, as I thought about this, up to this point, this message has been pretty negative, right? Pretty condemning, pretty... uh, Pretty, uh, like, let's get on with it. Uh, As I thought about how we might deal with these 14 indictments, it struck me as to just how incredibly the Lord has transformed our lives in Christ. What does it mean to go from death to life? Because what he's describing here is death. What does it mean to be alive in Christ? And I want to show you the, the indictment and the transformation that takes place in the Christian's life when he comes to Christ and comes alive spiritually. And that's what we really want to 
focus on. And in order to do that, I want you to begin by turning to Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. Titus 3 is one of the most incredible set of verses on the grace of God that there is in Scripture. And and he just says uh, in verse 3 of chapter 3, he says, For we also once were foolish ourselves. Anybody have a problem with that? Disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. You know, you look at our world today, the whole world's just hating on everybody. Everybody's hating on everybody else, right? I mean, e- even in the Muslim world, in the Middle East, they're, they're, they're hating on one another. People just can't accept anybody. We, we trace out our genealogies so we can try to prove how better we are than somebody else or, or uh, you know, discover something about ourselves that'll put exalt ourselves, and we're just continually hating on one another. And he says, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, who's that? Jesus. He says, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Why? Because there's none righteous, not even one. So how do you get saved if nobody's righteous, right? But according to his mercy... You know, basically, as Christians, we came to the point where all our arguments about how wonderful we were and how we could stand before God and, and schmooze him and get into heaven somehow failed. We said, you know, I am in desperate need of a Savior because I am a wretched, vile sinner. And I need God's grace. I need God's mercy. I have to, I have to be forgiven of my sin. And he says, by the washing of regeneration. What is regeneration? That's where something dead comes to life, and you were dead in your transgressions. He says, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. And renewing, that's the process that we're going through right now. God made us alive, and now he's renewing our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, how were we justified? By grace, not by works, not by the law, not by being born in the right family and doing all the right things, by grace. By throwing yourself on the mercy of the Savior, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's how we received eternal life was as a free gift of God's grace. So the point is, let's look at the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit that's been taking place in our lives in contrast to these 14 indictments Paul levels at the human race. And I think you'll find this very interesting. First of all, there's none righteous, not even one. By way of contrast, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, he lived his perfect life, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we would become the righteousness of God in him. Theologians call that the doctrine of imputation, where Christ's righteousness was credited to our sinful account, our sinful 
sin was credited to his perfect account, wiping it out. And now when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his own son covering us, basically bought by his blood. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And that's, that's the, the point. We were imputed the righteousness of Christ. He took our sin to his account and canceled it before a holy and just and perfect God. Um, so having no righteousness of his own compared to God's perfect righteousness, man through faith in Christ is declared righteous. Problem solved. If you're earning your way to heaven and you're in that mode, when do you ever come to the point where you know your goodies outweigh your baddies? Tell me. When do you do, do that one good work where you go, oh, I finally got on God's good side? Where do you do it? How do you know? It's insanity. When Christ becomes our righteousness through the cross and the resurrection, through belief in him, and the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Then he says, there is none who understands. But 1 Corinthians 2.16 declares that in Christ we understand spiritual truth. In fact, we have the mind of Christ as revealed through the scriptures by the Spirit of God. It's an awesome thing, isn't it? We have 3,000 pages of God's mind and how we need to know it, how we need to live it, how we need to, to share it. We have the mind of Christ as opposed to lack of understanding. Then he says, there is none who seeks for God. But the amazing thing is John 3, 6, 37 and many other places tells us God has sought us and drawn us to himself. We are a gift from the Father to the Son. And though none may seek him, God has sought us. What an awesome consideration. Elect from before the foundation of the world. Chosen to be sons and daughters of God. To be heirs of God. Join heirs of Christ, Romans 8, 17. Read, read Romans chapter 8 in that regard. It'll just boggle your mind. Then he tells us we have turned aside, but we by faith as God draw, has drawn us have turned in repentance to Christ for forgiveness and salvation and God has transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Then he tells us that, all, that together all mankind has become useless to God, but not us. We are now servants of God. Matthew, or Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 20 and Romans 6, 22 tells us, Witnesses to the gospel of Christ, the Great Commission, Acts 1.8. Uh, uh, we're the church of the living, resurrected Christ. Not only are we no longer useless, but we are the very heart and soul of what God is doing and what God is accomplishing in this world, Matthew 16 tells us, because what he's doing in this world is what? Building his church, right? That's what Matthew 16, upon this rock I will build my church. And that's the one thing God's doing in this world is building his church, and we are the church. Incredible thought. We go from being useless to being the one thing God is using 
in this world to do his will. Then he ends this indictment of man's fallen character by saying, there is none who does good, not even one. And people get kind of bristly when you bring this up, but what he's talking about here is eternal good. You see, men are capable of doing nice things. There are plenty of nice people out there, and, uh, but nice and good in, a, in man's eyes just doesn't cut it. Because what it does is it produces pride. Look at me, how I, I'm, I'm so nice, I'm way better than that guy, you know, that bum on Skid Row. But the problem is, whether you're nice and living in a mansion or you're that bum on Skid Row, you still have a sin problem. You're still a sinner. It doesn't matter. You're still a sinner. You are in need of the Savior. People are capable of doing nice things, but what he's talking about here is eternal good. And Paul sets the record straight in Ephesians 2.10 when he says, for we are his workmanship, and the word literally means we are his masterpieces created in Christ Jesus. There you see the regeneration that takes place in the believer's life. He says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, eternal, lasting, forever works, because they're God's works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Think through the ramifications of that. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, can walk in the good works which God, not you, which God has prepared beforehand that have eternal value. When I share the gospel with somebody and they come to Christ, that's for eternity. Eternity began the moment they received Christ for them. That's the most awesome work in the world, isn't it? Seeing sinners come to know the Savior and be given the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's an eternal work. There's a lot of nice things to do, a lot of good works to do, but the ultimate is that we would see others populate heaven with us. That's why we continually exhort people to share the gospel. What does it matter if a guy, you know, what does it matter if a guy dies a, a staunch conservative commentator on Fox News? without Christ. He still goes to hell. What does it matter if a guy's a liberal whatever and never knows Christ? Still goes to hell. If we still believe in that. But in Christ, they go to an eternal eternity of heaven and a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we see this indictment, the incredible transformation that takes place in our character, going from being eternally dead to being eternally alive in Christ. Now in verses 13 and 14, we see the indictment Paul makes concerning the fallen man's mouth or conversation. And this is pretty interesting. He says, in verse 13, their throat is an open grave. It's kind of like an open grave that people just kind of fall in and get slimed, right? Think politicians. He says, with their tongues they keep deceiving or lying. The poison of asps is under their lips. In other words, they're venomous, wicked, evil, nasty. He says, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. That's how it expresses itself. 
Now, I'm going to speed this up a little here, but Paul's indictment is that man slanders. And who's the ultimate slanderer? Satan, right? Slanders the brethren before the throne of God night and day, Revelation 12.10. And he slaughters others' character and reputation with his words. His throat is an open grave. He's a liar, a deceiver. His words are full of deadly poison, James 3.8 tells us, and he's full of cursing and anger and hatred and bitterness. The Christian, on the other hand, is to leave all those things at the door. In the power of the Holy Spirit, none of these things have to characterize our thoughts or our speech. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And he adds to that, against such things there is no law. You know, nobody passes a law that you can't love everybody, right, for Christ. You know, they can try and get you to stop doing that, but, but uh, can you? You know, who can take away your joy? Who can take away your patience, your peace, your kindness? There's no law against those things. You practice those things, and you don't have to worry about the law. Let me show you a passage that, I think gives a definitive word on all this. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. It's one of my favorite passages of all time. I call it the 180-degree principle. In verse 25 of Ephesians 4, he says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood. In other words, quit lying. (laughs) He says, Speak truth, each one of you, to his neighbor, For we are members of one another. Why would you lie to someone who you really respect and love and care for? He says, be angry and yet do not sin. There's plenty of things in this world to be angry about, but don't get bitter and cynical and resentful and all those kind of things that just drive your life where nobody can stand being around you. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Satan just loves Christians who are full of bitterness and hatred for the non-Christian world, because we have no impact on them. You know, somebody defined an evangelical Christian not too long ago, we were talking as someone who uh, hates gays and hates abortionists. Well, you know, those people are the victim of the enemy, 2 Timothy 3 tells us, not the enemy themselves. What they do is evil and wicked and vile, but again, they're not unredeemable. They need the gospel. They need the Savior. Then he says, uh, quit stealing, get a job, and give. Share with him who has need. Then he says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And if we don't live like that, what does it say? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. When we live like the world, we grieve the Spirit of God, although we are still sealed for the day of redemption, it says. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And again, be kind to one another. Is there any law against being kind? Is there any law against being tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you? I don't think so. 
You see, in the power of the Holy Spirit, what comes out of our mouth can be edifying, encouraging, and eternal. Supernaturally in Christ, the world and the devil's hold on man's mind and mouth can be broken. can be a source of edification and grace and kindness and forgiveness and tenderness. If our mouths would only follow that rule, huh? So we see the transformation in Christ that takes place in man's character and his conduct, uh, conversation. Now let's look at verses 15 through 18 and see the transformation that takes place in his conduct. Paul ends this indictment with four more indictments when he says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's kind of the closing clap of thunder. Notice man is swift to shed blood, destruction, and misery. All direct quotes from Isaiah 59, 7, and 8. And and that's our world. Because our world is all about death. There's war everywhere. There's terrorism that's escalating, getting worse and worse all the time. 60 plus, probably more like 70 million plus refugees have been driven from their homes all over the world and for the most part aren't doing too well, many of them starving to death. 50 million plus abortions worldwide, euthanasia and you just go on and on and on it goes. Our world is often a killing field. Our hatred for one another is legendary as men follow the world hater. Satan was a murderer and a hater and a liar from the beginning, isn't he? John chapter 8. But true Christianity, I'm talking about true Christianity, not false versions that have sprung up over the ages. But true Christianity is all about life. It's all about love as we worship the prince of life and the, the one who poured out his love to this world. And, and we have peace with God through Christ, and we love our fellow man. We share the good news of eternal life with him. We know the way of peace in our death-riddled world. You know, I was watching a faith kind of movie the other day, and just said, uh, you know, you can reduce the Christian life down to two things, love God and love your neighbor. That's the first two commandments. And that includes loving Christ, the Savior, and so on and so forth, loving his people, loving those in the world who need Christ. And that's what we're all, should be all about. So we see the transformation that takes place in the Christian's life in contrast to our world then Paul ends this indictment by saying there is no fear of God before their eyes. Here is the reason for all of man's woes. He has chosen to exalt himself, his sin and his pride, and diminish and disregard God. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks. But their foolish heart was darkened. And professing to be wise, they became fools. And we read in Psalms 14, what? One, what? That the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's the comment on man. But not so the believer. 
We believe the truth of Proverbs 9.10 that says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know, as much as you stand in awe of God, you stand in fear of him. Because he is awesome in the purest sense of the word. But then he says knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For us, fear and awe of the one true majestic God is where, it's, where it all begins. And John, 1 John 4.18 tells us, his perfect love for us, given to us in Christ, casts out all fear. Therein is understanding. We understand that God loves us and has forgiven our sin. Oh, to really understand that, it'll revolutionize your life even as a Christian. So we've seen the verdict, all men are under sin, verse 19. We've seen the final closing arguments and the transformation that takes place in our lives in Christ, in contrast to our unbelieving condition. Then finally, the sentencing. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth, notice these conclusive terms, every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh, will be justified in his sight. For through the law simply comes the knowledge of sin. <coughs> now at this point, every defense man is brought to his aid has failed. Man has failed to see God in creation, therefore is without excuse. Man has failed to worship the true God, the creator, and instead has chosen to, in essence, to worship himself. And even the religious Jew has missed the righteousness of God, his pedigree, his law, his the sign of the circumcision have all failed. Man, both Jew and Greek alike, is hopelessly lost in his sin. So the sentence, guilty as charged. Every mouth is shut, and all the world stands judged and accountable to God because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes only the knowledge of sin. The point is, we are all sinners. The sentence, well, continue on your hellbound course in your sin or turn to the Savior in repentance of your sin and receive God's pardon and redemption and the forgiveness of your sins. What would you give to be forgiven for what you've done in your life? What would you give? Well, God loved you enough to give his own son to pay the penalty for what, way beyond whatever you would be willing to give. Are you willing to accept that? Because the scriptures tell us you have no other choice. Mark those words. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, speaking of eternal life, no man. Again, absolute, whatever, I don't know what to call it, absolute dogmatism. No man comes to the Father but through me, period. And that's Paul's argument that he will substantiate for the rest of the book of Romans. And I would just encourage you, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, that that you would understand what I'm saying is one of the most urgent messages you will ever hear. 
because there is no other solution to man's sin problem. There is no other solution for you as a sinner than Christ himself, the Savior, the forgiver of our sins, the one who loves us with an unconditional love, and he offers it as a free gift. I don't, I don't know. I just can't understand why people don't want to receive the free gift of eternal life. What would you give up to live eternally? Your sin? Or do we love it too much because men love the darkness and wouldn't come to light because their deeds were evil? If there's a sin in your life that is so important to keep you from coming to Christ, my prayer is that you'll understand you're giving up absolutely nothing except hell and damnation. The rest of the book of Romans will be a little more positive. But uh, let's get it in our minds that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. No man comes to the Father but through him. Let's not only intellectually believe it, let's live it and share it and share him with others because they're in dire peril in eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this word, no matter how hard it is to preach or no matter how hard it is to hear. May we really uh, ruminate on these words. May we really meditate on these words. May we really understand that all men are condemned and yet we have the cure. God, you've given us the gospel, the good news. That though man is condemned, yet through Christ he can know eternal life, and it's free for the taking. Lord, help us to really understand and internalize those words, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen.